Good morning. It's good to see you in worship this morning. We're glad to have you, especially if you're a guest with us this morning. We want to warmly welcome you and let you know that we're glad to have you with us this morning to worship the Lord. If I seem uh, especially relaxed (laughs) and a little more smiley than normal, um, it's because I'm especially relaxed and a little more smiley. Um, and a little more tan. Uh, we were gone this past week in Panama City Beach, Florida, because my crazy wife surprised us with a, uh, with a week's vacation. Um, I'm not so good with the rest thing, so she has to plan my, my uh, rest for me. Um, so we did that as a family and had a great time in uh, Panama City. Uh, it, was, it was fantastic, sort of living like the other half lives for a week. It was great. Uh, she had saved up for two years, and we did we did it right. We we went uh, parasailing, uh, which uh, was mostly awesome. Um, <laughs> no, it really was. It was it was a great experience. It's where you're in this huge parachute pulled behind a boat. And uh, for those of you who know what parasailing is, we did not do the dip at the end. Um, oh, no way, man! No way! <laughs> I wanted to be back here. Um, we swam with the dolphins for a little while um, out in the wild in the Gulf, which was an amazing experience. Uh, we got off the boat, and my, my, my son Alden and I were in our life jackets. And I, I kid you not, a male dolphin the size, at least as long as our, as our minivan, came right underneath me. And I thought to myself, that's as close as I want to come. And I got on the boat again. And Alden and I uh, were in the boat while um, the brave women of our... Uh, <laughs> of our family actually touched them, and there were, you know, there were literally, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating, a dozen dolphins just around where we were, just swimming around us. It was a cool experience. It was great. Went on a little pirate ship, which was a cool experience. Uh, and, and, and Alden's giving me the, no, not that. Talk about the jet skis. That's what Alden's giving me the sign for down there. It was a great time. Uh, so we got in back yesterday evening, uh, late afternoon, and, uh, are, are glad to be back. Um, I had most of my sermon prep done before we left, so we had a whole week of, uh, of uh, just vacation for the most part. Um, I didn't quite get it all done, so I came in yesterday, and so we're going to be a little shorter than normal today. Um, yes, uh-huh. <laughs> a little more of a devotional thought than a hardcore textual study like normal. I know you're sad about that. Um, yay, let's send them away every week. Uh, special thanks to Tommy for preaching for me last week. Um, he does a great job, of course. Um, he always does. And uh, thanks for the staff for filling in the holes uh, while I was gone. Um, there's always a little more work for everybody else uh, when, when one of us is gone. So thanks to the staff for that last week. Um, some of them are probably thinking, it really wasn't that much more work, Scott. Uh, like Eric said, happy Memorial Day. We're glad uh, to be able as, as people of God to assemble. We're gathered here in a free country, and uh, we should uh, be glad about that and, uh, and celebrate that freedom that we enjoy, because that came at a great cost. I'd like to draw your attention, before we jump in here, to the inside of the worship guide, where we've got the sermon notes. Uh, you can follow along there. We'll fill in a couple of those blanks as we go along. If you've got a smartphone, you can follow along in the uh, version app. It's a free Bible app for just about any smartphone. Search under live events. If you don't know what any of that means, then don't sweat it. 
Um, we believe here at First Christian that the Word of God is adequate to feed us and equip us and is given to us as a gift by God uh, for the purpose of us becoming who he created us to be. And so we want to approach it with that kind of uh, thought and heart uh, this morning. So let's pray toward that end. Father in heaven, we... Take a moment to silence ourselves and remember that you are God, that you are creator of the universe, and that you are sovereign, and that the reality about you is is infinitely beyond our, our greatest thoughts, and so we approach your word, knowing that your truth is contained in there for us, to feed us, to tell us who we are, to, to know that you've created us for the purpose of your cause and your glory, and that we are most joyful this side of heaven when we live lives according to your word and, and in a manner that, that accords with your glory. So, Father, we want to have you feed us through your Holy Spirit today. We implore you to feed thirsty souls by your life-giving truth. And so we approach today your word with that heart in mind. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Well, today is Family Sunday. Uh, Family Sunday is the last Sunday of every month where we invite our younger kids to join us for the whole service, uh, typically at about this time, uh, before we go all adult on them, um, they go off to uh, children's worship, but we're keeping them with us the last Sunday of every month because we believe that having the generations together is a witness uh, of faith to those kids. So um, anybody who is with us today for Family Sunday who is preschool, kindergarten, um, you know, elementary school age, raise your hand. Kim Clark, you do not qualify. All right. We've got all our kids with their hands raised. Beautiful. Good, good, good. All right. You can put your hands down. Thank you. Got a few questions for you. The first one's easy, okay? Really easy. I want you just don't even worry about raising your hands. We're, we're going to be all a little bit crazy. Just yell it out. What is this? Chair. Yes, very nice. This is a chair. You are correct. Uh, good job. So. There's more. It gets, hard. it gets harder. Let me ask you this. Let's say you, you, you do something wrong, or you disobey your mommy or your daddy or your teacher. You do something wrong, and, and uh, they make you sit in this. Okay? This isn't, at that point, just a chair. This becomes what? Nice. <laughs> nice. Very good. That is exactly right. We're baptizing that kid later, right? Uh, no, really, we are today. Uh, this is a timeout chair. Exactly. That's what it becomes. It becomes a timeout chair. Now, how many of you who just raised your hands have been in timeout before? How many of you who did not just raise your hands have been? Yeah, all of you should be. Yeah. Um, one more question that's a little bit harder. 
Uh, one more question. It's a little bit harder. Some of the older kids may have to help out. When you're told you have to sit here because you did, did something wrong or you disobeyed, um, your, your, your mommy and daddy do that to, to teach you, okay? Does anybody have any other words for what that's called when they correct you when they say you have to sit in time out? Any other words for what that's called when they do that? Very nice. Excellent. You guys are good. Discipline is the fancy word, and we got it on screen for you. Discipline is the word we're talking about today in our sermon and in the passage we're going to look at in just a second here. Discipline is like a timeout chair, okay? It's like a timeout chair. It describes how our parents teach us how to do what is good and right, the difference between right and wrong, okay? Sometimes they have to put you in timeout. Sometimes they may take away uh, a toy that you really enjoy uh, or something like that so that you learn the lesson, okay? I remember as a kid, for me, I was about five or six, about many of your age, uh, about five or six, when I had to learn a lesson the hard way. And what we're going to look at today in the, in the scripture passage is how Jacob had to learn his lesson the hard way. All right? When I had to learn my lesson the hard way, I was about five or six, and I had this new ball that I had just gotten, just purchased it, maybe that day, maybe the day before. I, I don't exactly remember. But, but I, was, I remember feeling excited about this ball because I was a six-year-old boy and I had a ball, so that's all I needed. Um, and I was playing with it at the top of our, of, our, of our house. And we had this big, long yard that sloped very far down to the street. Okay? And I lost my ball. And the ball went down to the beginning of where the street happens and the yard, street and yard meet. And uh, for some reason, I didn't want to go down and get my ball. I don't remember exactly why, but I remember feeling scared. And my mom said, listen, it's just right there. We don't live on a busy street. There are no cars coming. Just go right down and get your ball, Scott. Uh, for some reason, I was scared. One of the things she told me, you'd better go get it before somebody comes and grabs it. And can you believe what happened? True story. I'm six years old. I'm still upset. I'm six years old. I had this ball, and this woman drives by, opens her car door, takes my ball. And we're talking like right then. My, mo my mom and I are talking about this. I, I have some issues still. Um, <laughs> we're talking about this, and this woman gets out of her car and takes my ball and drives off. No exaggeration, true story. I learned the hard way. I learned my lesson the hard way that you cannot hesitate to do what you know you should do. You can't hesitate to do what you know you should do. And sometimes we have to learn our lessons the hard way, don't we? In fact, adults, <laughs> as we all know, it's not really sometimes. It's pretty much always we learn lessons the hard way. Contrary to every impulse in our bones, in fact, discipline is not a bad thing to be avoided. That's the first blank in your sermon outline there today. Discipline is not a bad thing to be avoided. We learn this from numerous places in Scripture, but I want to uh, ask you just to turn with me to a couple places before we get to Genesis. Uh, the first is 1 Timothy 4. 1 Timothy 4 and uh, Hebrews 12. We'll have a little sword drill here. 1 Timothy 4. I win. Uh, 1 Timothy 4, 7. And uh, we'll go from 7 through 10 there in 1 Timothy 4 and Hebrews 12 
3 to 11. This is a couple substantive places in Scripture where we learn this idea that discipline is not a bad thing. Look at uh, those with me on screen and in your Bibles here. This is 1 Timothy 4, 7 through 10. It says this, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, instead, train yourself for godliness. If you're an underliner like I am, that'd be a good phrase there. Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive. Those are hardcore words there toil and strive. In other words, godliness is worth toiling and striving for far more than other kinds of training to which we give ourselves very easily. So, to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set in the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Take that passage plus Hebrews 12 here, which we'll look at here in just a second, and what you'll get is the idea that discipline is not a bad thing. We'll expound that a little more here. Look at Hebrews 12, 3 through 11. This is a, a great passage. I love this part of Hebrews. <clears throat> Hebrews 12, 3 to 11 consider him that's Jesus in other words consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted in your struggle against sin you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons my son do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. It's a great phrase there. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. It doesn't say if, it says when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. If you're an underliner or a circler or a starer, take note of that. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God's treating you as sons. In other words, part of being a son or daughter, part of being a child of God means undergoing this discipline. It's right there in Scripture. God is treating you as sons for what son is there whom his father does not discipline. If you are left without discipline, in which we've all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Part and parcel of being a children of God is undergoing discipline. Verse 9. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and lived? For they, earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good. For this reason, that we may share his holiness. Just like that phrase about training for godliness in 1 Timothy. We see this all over Scripture, but here are two great places to keep in mind. It says, He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Mature believers and followers of Christ have this perception about their relationship with God, that discipline is not a bad thing to be avoided. Discipline is not a bad thing to be avoided. We've written this next part down so you don't have to write it there. In fact, it's a sign that God loves you and has plans to use you for his glory. It's the process of learning that God's plans were never intended in the first place to match up with your plans for you. 
easy to say, hard to live that truth and reality out in our lives. Discipline is a process of learning that God's plans were never intended to match up with your plans for you. In other words, that's how we learn that it's really the other way around. Discipline is learning that God's plan for his glory must become our plan. In fact, as we learn today in the life of Jacob, and according to those passages we just looked at, because of the principle that God is most concerned, as we just talked about, with your godliness, your holiness, because God is more concerned with your character than he is your comfort, those are the next two blanks, then we get to today's big idea for Jacob. Because of that principle, that he is more concerned with our character than our comfort, God has to break you before he can use you. Discipline ain't just for kids in time out. Discipline is for people who are maturing believers, growing in their relationship with God. And the truth of the life of Jacob very clearly tells us that he has to be broken before he can be used by God. God's going to bless him. God's going to use him. But, but the process of Jacob becoming the kind of person who would be used as God intended to fulfill his covenant promise meant that Jacob had to be broken before he could be used. And it's the same for us. And so let's look at, let's look at how Jacob is in this school of hard knocks here. Let's set it up by just saying, basically, that, that Jacob, uh, Jacob's a typical male, okay? Jacob is a typical male. Uh, those of you who are wives and, and dating may want to write this down. Uh, a typical male is stubborn, impetuous, hard-headed, and here's my favorite one here, so unjustifiably self-confident that he can't even see straight. That's your typical male. So unjustifiably self-confident that he can't even see straight. That's your typical immature male before they've been broken. And you know I'm preaching the truth here. Because all of us as males, as males have experienced this. So unjustifiably self-confident that you can't even see straight. That makes for a long and hard process of breaking. That means that Jacob's going to learn the hard way. You'd think that the ladder in the dream that Tommy talked about last week would have been enough for, for Jacob, but it wasn't. He had to go through the process of learning, uh, go through the process of, of breaking old habits and, and, and ways of thinking. So the story of Jacob is one of God's discipline changing him into a man that God can use. Who here doesn't want to be used by God for his kingdom? That's what we want in life. You can say whatever else you want, but we all know that in the big picture, according to Genesis, as we've talked about, what we really want is to be used by God for his glory and for his purposes. And that's what brings us satisfaction in life. And Jacob had to learn that the hard way. And this is the story uh, in three quick chapters here of him being disciplined into a man that God can use. So here's how God breaks Jacob. We start off in 29, the beginning of that chapter there. He breaks Jacob with his relationship with Laban. Look at 29, 13 through 30 here. This is the section uh, where it sort of sets up this conflict between Jacob and Laban. Uh, In Laban, Jacob had met his match. Uh, Laban was 30 years older than Jacob and was clearly prepared in every way to, uh, to outwit and to outdeceive uh, Jacob. If you've been with us in, in Genesis, you remember that 
we learn that Jacob had deceived his brother Esau. Jacob, the patriarch, deceived his brother Esau out of his birthright and his blessing. Jacob's name even means he grabs the heel, which is another way of saying he deceives. Well, Laban is Jacob's match and superior. You, you might call him Mr. He grabs both heels because Laban is, uh, is going to come on the scene and make Jacob's life kind of miserable. So he comes on the scene, verse, uh, verse 1 of 29 in, in Genesis, and he comes on the scene, and we know why he's there. We know why he's here in this place. He's here to find a wife, and Laban knows that too. He's coming to find a wife just like uh, Jacob's father Isaac had done, and Laban knows this too. So look at verse 13 here in Genesis, the 29th chapter. Verse 13, chapter 29. As soon as Laban heard the news about the arrival of Jacob, his sister's son, in other words, Laban is Rebekah's brother, Laban is the uncle, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Where are the camels your father Isaac brought? That's obviously not what he says, but it's what he's thinking, because Laban is no dummy. He knows why Jacob has arrived. He knows that he's looking for a wife, and he also knows, like Jacob's father Isaac, he also knows it means dollar signs. So Laban, verse 14, said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he, that is Jacob, stayed with Laban a month. A month is plenty of time to discern whether or not this impetuous young man likes your beautiful daughter. In fact, a minute is about all it takes. Um, So scheming Laban says, verse 15, as if he didn't already know the answer, verse 15, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? So Jacob agrees to serve Laban for seven years' wages. Seven years' wages is at least two to three times the going price for a bride. It's about two to three times the going bride price at the time for Rachel's hand in marriage. So, so Laban goes the extra mile to, uh, I'm sorry, Jacob goes the extra mile to serve for Rachel. Long story short, seven years later, Laban switches his younger daughter Leah for Rachel. When it comes time for Jacob to um, complete the marriage with Rachel, he switches in Leah. Now, that's not impossible to do. It sounds sort of crazy for us, but it's not impossible to do in a, in a culture like theirs where, where nighttime is much close, closer to pitch dark than it is for us. Uh, no lights at all. Uh, she was wearing a veil, and uh, there was probably some libations going on at the party. So, so all that put together means it's not an impossible uh, feat for Laban to switch the younger daughter on Jacob. So Laban switches Leah for Rachel, and Jacob finds himself married to Leah. Uh, and then, then Laban demands that Jacob stay for another seven years. Is anybody a little bit confused? The soap opera is just beginning. The soap opera drama is just beginning. So... So the soap opera begins here with the the difference of Rachel and and Leah and and another seven years. So uh, Jacob's starting to see that Laban is is clearly his match. 
and he's beginning to be a broken man who, who is experiencing a little more of the kind of life that he had led. Remember, he, he wheeled and dealed for, uh, for the birthright and the blessing. And he had been deceitful with his own family and in cahoots with his own mom to get the blessing of his dad. And, and that's who Jacob was. And, and now he's beginning to experience, ironically, some of that same kind of behavior. And that's part of the process of him being broken. Well, we come to Rachel and Leah in 29, 31, 29, verse 31, all the way through 30, verse 24. The soap opera sort of drama begins to ramp up there. And, and Leah, the younger uh, daughter, the, the younger wife, begins to bear J- Jacob his children. And she's just sort of churning them out one after the other, while Rachel, on the other hand, remains childless. So by the time we get to chapter 30, it's Leah 4, Rachel 0. Not an ideal situation for sisters who are wed to the same man in a culture where their main goal is to bear children. The manipulation and the sibling rivalry and the control and the competition really start to ramp up here. Rachel, this is verse 1 in chapter 30 here, Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, and she envied her sister. So thus ensues this back-and-forth cat fight that involves this manipulation and sibling rivalry of the worst kind. And without going into all the details, it's family Sunday. So uh, basically, it's a cat fight. It's ugly. Okay? And there's a sibling rivalry that ensues that makes Jacob's relationships Miserable. Jacob's being broken. Jacob's being broken because the kind of deceit that that, that he had produced is now being directed at him, and he's on the receiving end of it. And even though he now has 11 sons, it's been a long and painful 20 years. 20 years of his life serving Laban a long process of discipline. He must have been a pretty impetuous guy. He must, he must have been a pretty stubborn dude. So, finally, in chapter 30, look at verse 25 there with me for just a second. Chapter 30, verse 25. Finally, Jacob just begs Laban. He says, send me away that I may go to my own home and country. He's, he's almost saying, uncle, I give up. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you, that I may go, for you know the service that I have given you. Listen to the, the tone there. He's, he's beginning to be a little more of an honest guy who says, Listen, Laban, you know I've served you faithfully. You know full well that I have done what you've asked me to do. I, I, I'm part of this covenant promise. I'm supposed to go back and be blessed by God. So just let me go. I've done my time. So Jacob knew that he was a part of this promise of God and he knew that he was called to be blessed, to be a blessing is the, is the phrase used in Genesis 12. He knew it, but how it was to happen and when it was to happen was a different story than he expected. After 20 hard years, Jacob had just begun to learn his lesson and the blessing of God 
came accordingly. Laban, Laban even admitted uh, in verse 27 there in chapter 30, even admitted that he had been blessed because of Jacob. Well, Jacob's education wasn't quite over. We'll talk about this next week. He would go on to wrestle against the angel, and uh, his name would be changed to Israel, and he would eventually become a great patriarch of the faith. His, his 12 sons would be the, the sons of Israel, the 12 tribes of, of Israel. And his own son, Joseph, would become a great leader for the people of God, who would liberate the Israelites from their slavery in Egypt. But that couldn't have happened if he had not become the kind of man that underwent the discipline of God. And, and this story is, is of Jacob, this impetuous, energetic young man, becoming a wiser and more fruitful man that could be used by God. But the journey was longer and more difficult and more frustrating than he ever could have imagined. Which one of us cannot say the same thing about our own lives and our own experiences and our own growth in godliness? Because God's got to break you before he can use you. For all of us, Becoming wiser and more fruitful vessels of God is always an education in the school of hard knocks. You see, if, if, the, goal, if the goal, as we've learned in Genesis all along, is being fruitful and multiplying the glory of God in the world, then we have to submit ourselves to God's purposes totally. We have to submit ourselves to his greater purpose of his glory if we are to be used by him toward that end. Instead, though, let's just say it frankly, we kick and scream against every form of God's discipline in which we find ourselves. We kick and scream against the opportunities that are right in front of us to grow and to become who he's created us to be. We, we refuse the opportunities and the open doors for our growth that he has placed before us. For example, that this church has placed before us, like joining a study group or a Sunday school class, where before this hour you will be with other faithful Christians studying the word of God for your godliness and your growth. Or in a life group with a community of other believers who want to work out their salvation in fear and trembling and apply what we're learning on Sunday to our lives throughout the week with others who are along with us in that journey. Or finding a way to serve. Instead of having to be asked, Instead of having to be handed it on a silver platter. Mature believers see the opportunities and walk through those opportunities and doors. They don't have to wait for somebody else. Because their relationship with God is such that they note it and say, that's discipline, that's opportunity, that's my chance to become someone who is growing in godliness and faith. 
The, the, the problem is we kick and scream against the process. We have opportunities all over the place. And then when we say no to them, we blame others or him for our failure to become a part of a growing community of faith. How is that not kicking and screaming against his discipline? We Christians can easily become like 80%, I'm sorry, 87% of Americans who own running shoes but never run. It's easy to, to make promises, to make, to make public declarations of faith, but, but then we cry foul when they are not fulfilled as we expect. Maybe it's your expectations. Maybe your expectations are about you and your goals. The life of Jacob, if nothing else, is a lesson in giving up your goals. I want to encourage you from the life of Jacob and of Scripture and the truth that God wants to discipline us for our good, for godliness. I want to encourage you to give in to your circumstances instead of fighting them. Just give in to them. You plan on changing them somehow? Give in to your circumstances instead of just fighting against them. And consider that the formation of God's character in you is of infinitely more important value than your comfort or your circumstances. The formation of the character of God in you and the purpose of godliness and his glory and his goal is of infinitely more value to you than anything else you could control or constrain with comfort or better circumstances. That doesn't mean it's a fun road. But it means it's a godly road. It means it's the same kind of road that Jesus Christ went down. Jacob learned to do this, and he became used of God in ways he could never have imagined. Jesus was the perfect and ultimate example of this, of course. Broken totally. (laughs) You think you're broken? He was broken. In infinite measure that we could never possibly fathom. And about his circumstances, he said, Lord, your will, not mine. And as we know, God used his life to do what no one else could. And certainly to do what we can't. So so what would it look like if we as a community of faith just gave up the fight against God's work in us? Just give up the fight against his work in us. What would your families look like? Your, your, Your marriages, your relationships with coworkers and friends. Just give in to the process. Because he can't use you if he doesn't break you. So pray dangerous prayers that ask for God's will of breaking you. Lord God, we do pray that prayer. 
We admit that we have manipulated and controlled and kept at an arm's distance your discipline. We ask for you to break us. To break us of the need to be our own Savior. We ask, Father, that you would make of us people whose lives are testimonies that you are who you claim. That people would look at this community of faith and at our families and at our marriages, at our lives, and they would see you because we have given ourselves and submitted totally to your glory and not to ours. Father, we're grateful for the Holy Spirit to empower us toward that end. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.